So all that we do is we take that style and apply that to crypto. And that, that's why we effectively do not care if it goes to $1 million per Bitcoin or whatever. All we care about is that, does it actually trend? Welcome to episode four of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. And in today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with my good friend, Burak Yenigan, who is the founder of an investment firm called Stylus Capital, which leverages trend-following strategies and momentum strategies to invest in cryptocurrencies. Now, as somebody who initially started their career on Wall Street, I always found these trend-following strategies and approaches to investing uh, pretty fascinating. And not because I was ever going to implement any complex trend-following strategies of my own, but because if you just look at investing and markets as a way to better understand the world, it's pretty wild that momentum investing has such deep academic grounding that has persisted over decades. Um, if you think about the world, it is cyclical, whether it's fashion trends, the economic booms and busts, the repeatability of the seasons, even human emotional states. So much of my interest with engaging in conversation with people with very different areas of expertise is to try and pull out these key insights that can be seen in all avenues of life. And while in this episode, I do spend a lot of time uh, picking Burak's brain as it relates to his investment strategy and background, um, I can't help but think that in the back of my mind, how cool it is to see momentum-based phenomenon in all aspects of life. Now, obviously, before getting into the episode, I should state that none of this is investment advice. I am not a professional investor or nor financial advisor. And especially with crypto, would caution you to be particularly careful with how you invest. With that said, if you are a high net worth individual or an institutional investor, and you're interested in learning more about Burak and what he's doing over at Stylus Capital, you can learn more uh, by visiting styluscapital.com. That's S-T-Y-L-U-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Birak Yenigan. Birak, first of all, thanks for joining. I'm super excited to kind of reconnect and have this conversation. Um, maybe to kick things off, like in terms of your background and a little bit about like what you do professionally with with Stylus, could you share a little bit about it? Because you're you're in the crypto space, but it's in a pretty at least from an investment strategy perspective, a pretty unique approach, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So thanks for having me, first of all. And uh, to answer your second question first, yeah, we are a systematic crypto hedge fund and we do things slightly differently because typically when you have a crypto hedge fund, their thesis tends to be very much long crypto, just in different ways. Uh, we don't necessarily take a view on crypto. We really do not care if it becomes the next big thing or if it just, you know, crashes and burns. All we care about is whether or not it actually exhibits trends. So there is this very well-known uh, investment style in the traditional asset classes called momentum. There is time series momentum, which is trend following. Uh, effectively, things that have gone up recently tend to go up further in the future. Uh, there appears to be some kind of behavioral element to this. Um, nobody knows exactly why it works, but there's some theories. So all that we do is we take that style and apply that to crypto. And that, that's why we effectively do not care if it goes to $1 million per Bitcoin or whatever. All we care about is that, does it actually trend? So that's why I guess we are slightly different in that sense. But yeah, but like my journey up until this point has been slightly unusual, I suppose, as far as hedge fund managers go. I was, well, I was born and raised in um, Turkey. Um, and then I studied here uh, in Istanbul. I graduated with a electronics engineering degree uh, from uh, Boğaziçi University. Um, after I finished my degree, I moved to London. I worked for an investment bank for their risk and pricing team for one of their trading businesses. And uh, pretty much on my first day there, I said, oh, you know, this is just absolutely fantastic. I really want to be in the investment business. Um, and then I 
read a whole bunch of books, probably very common with people like me. The, one of the first ones that I read was Intelligent Investor, and that really got me hooked. And then one thing led to another, and I eventually, I think it was probably by the first year at, m- at my time in JP Morgan, I decided, well, look, I, you know, I got to go back to Turkey and launch it from there because it's, it's a lot more expensive to do that out of London. Uh, but anyway, so I uh, quit uh, and I moved back. I spent two more years at Oliver Wyman and management consulting firm. It helped me kind of get more acquainted with the local kind of financial services industry, et cetera, it helped build my network. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, I launched Stylus Capital. Um, originally, I thought that I was the next Buffett. Didn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> I was a value investor. I think I told you the story. So Basically, the idea was that I was going to build a five-year track record in value investing. And if my track record breaches a certain benchmark that I had in my mind, then I would go out and try to raise more capital. About three, four years in, I mean, my track record wasn't terrible, actually. Considering how poorly value investing performed over that period, I was slightly exceeding my benchmark. That would put me at the top 5%, probably. But, um, But then I lost the conviction that... I had a very well-defined and super replicable edge um, because the performance was good, but not nearly as good as I had set up as a benchmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of the investments that I had made with very high conviction, some of them worked fantastically well, but just in terms of the things that did break down, uh, it basically did not give me the confidence that this is a thing that should exist in the world well when there are so many great value managers out there that are doing extremely deep work very very successfully you know the world just does not need another value manager that's outperforming by one percent per year or something okay if you're outperforming by five percent okay maybe that's great but you know and then this is where the transition from you know discretionary value investing to systematic crypto investing this is when uh, it happened. Um, there was not like an exact date when we decided, okay, we're just going to not do this anymore and do that instead. But throughout my value investing, uh, one thing bothered me a lot, uh, and that was the position sizing methodology. So if you're like a typical value inv- value investing manager, you probably have like a position size in mind that you allocate, let's say 10% or 5% to high conviction positions. And that remains reasonably constant or it is not very tightly managed in terms of position size. For example, a problem that you may have is, okay, you bought Apple at $100, it's now at $200, and you thought the fair value was $300. How should your position position size change? Because right. sure, it's no longer as deep value as it was. So if you had a 10% position, you should actually cut that down, um, arguably. Uh, but in practice, I think what happens a lot is that people actually hold on to those, their positions. So their 10% position becomes two, 20%, right? Because the position doubled in price. So anyways, when I was trying to um, search for answers to these problems, that's when I ran into a systematic trading framework by Robert Carver, who is now our, funny enough, he's our research advisor now. Wow. Um, yeah, So we. Uh, so I think I first met him back in 2016 or 17 over email, I just sent out him an email, you know, saying it's, you know, fantastic, you know, it's helping with me with all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, you know, that became a friendship. And now he's a research advisor to our current hedge mm. fund. Um, but yeah, basically, I was looking to implement his framework for that purpose. And also, I was thinking, well, how can we add like these trend following elements in there? Like, maybe we can stop, maybe we can cut our losses in value investing positions that are not working well. You can combine value and momentum, et cetera. So I was thinking about all of these things. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017 summer, that's the first time I took a look at crypto, right when I was kind of uh, thinking about these questions. And uh, I spent three months trying to understand it. Finally, I had the feeling that I had a reasonable understanding of Bitcoin. Um, that gave me comfort about some of the things that were being claimed, like there can only be 21 million, et cetera, et cetera. And then I realized, well, this is the ultimate momentum asset. And we talk about this a lot in our website and our other uh, material. It's If you think about it, it's like, it's like an artwork that happens to be liquid. So you cannot really change. It's perfectly inelastic in terms of its supply. Um, so you know, no matter what the price is, there can only be so many Bitcoins mined per 10 minutes. Right. And that makes it a completely unanchored asset uh, in terms of having any kind of 
fair value, unlike many other things out there. Um, and uh, so it's purely trading on sentiment. So we've, and I said, oh, well, this is great. I mean, I want to just trend follow this thing using the framework that Rob has. So we, that's what we implemented. And this was not intended to be like a hedge fund or anything. We just were using it for our own purposes. But then um, a lot of people who were trying to get exposure to crypto in sensible ways, uh, they said, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to invest too. And then we figured, well, maybe it makes sense to launch a hedge fund. And there was not, I don't think that there were many people that were doing trend following on crypto at the time. That's how we, and then that also coincided with the period where, you know, I was already beginning to lose my conviction that I had a very well-defined edge in value investing. Hmm. So what we did is we told our investors, look, we're going to shut down the value investing operation. And then we launched a separate entity that does purely systematic crypto asset management. And we created that asset management firm in 2018. Uh, and then the fund was launched in 2019. So okay. yes, then my core focus has been in systematic crypto trading. And so that has been the kind of, I guess I was going to say that's the summary, but that wasn't exactly a short summary of how. <laughs> no, how oh, it's here. great. And I, when we've discussed previously, you've shared like pieces of it, but it's good to get, uh, to refresh my memory. When, yeah. when you were at JP Morgan and yeah. then at Oliver Wyman, the lead up to Stylus was the end goal always to have like your own fund that you were managing or did this kind of materialize in a spontaneous sort of way? No, that was the objective. So my from and actually I, I mentioned that I loved it on day one in JP Morgan, but I actually had a love for it even further going back. Like I was always kind of circling around like finance investing topics since high school. Um, but it was not like so hard set in stone. But when I went to JP Morgan, I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. And from that point onwards, yes, that was I was dead set on that goal. Then I figured, you know, oh, well, launching a fund seems like a very expensive thing to do. So maybe I will do something else up until I'm 40 and then launch with hopefully, you know, more financial resources. But it's funny when you're, and this is probably a theme that you come across a lot across all like entrepreneurship stories or whatever. When you're obsessively thinking about something, you are uniquely positioned to be helped with certain information that seems so meaningless to other people. Like, mm -hmm. for example, in my case, I came across interactive brokers and I was like, oh, okay, this is a great broker. Um, I'm going to start using this. And then I realized that they have this advisor platform that allows you in a very cheap way, like effectively free at the time, I think, to spin up a managed accounts operation, basically. And that actually allows you to, instead of launching an expensive hedge fund, you can spin up a managed accounts operation very quickly. So at that mm. point, I, oh, okay, I'm not going to wait until 40. I'm actually going to go out and do this straight away. Um, and I think the, so I think I was 28 when the company was launched. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's 12 years earlier than I planned that I was <laughs> able to, but uh, yeah. So basically by the time I came back to Istanbul, I knew that I would be launching using the, that platform. Interesting. And so the, so originally, like Stylus Capital, there was a value investing aspect to it. And then the time series momentum yes. within crypto kind of came up. Did you ultimately yeah. retire the value investing aspect of it? Or does that still exist? You're just exactly. not actively like, you know, uh, promoting and, and building that that piece of it I to know. external investors and stuff like that. Yeah, we just basically retired it. We, we just completely shut that down uh, because it did not satisfy the you know, to be fair, to very high bar that I had set, you know, you could argue that it was a naively high bar. Uh, you know, I had told myself, unless I'm outperforming by 10% per year, mm -hmm. which basically gives you, there is, you can never be sure, but a very large statistical confidence, I thought at the time. But then, of course, when you speak to people who have run, you know, quant investment firms, etc., like even 10% over five years is not necessarily um, such a overwhelming evidence, you probably need longer time horizons to actually convince A, yourself and B, your investors as well, that you actually have a reasonably defined edge. So basically you're trying to answer the questions, what is the chance that the results that you got were purely out of luck? Um, and you want that chance to be, you know, 1%, right? So you want to be, because there's so many, you know, it's like, it's like the P score hacking kind of thing, right? Like yeah. how much statistical significance you want. Um, so yeah, we completely shut that down. And I think around that time, 
I can't remember when I saw this, but maybe you heard about that Charlie Munger quote where I think he says, if we were starting today, we would not be doing value investing. <laughs> so it's always where the edge is always changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's still edge in value investing. I think there are fantastic managers. Like there's reason to expect that value investing will remain as a persistent phenomenon. It's just that like, if you think about anything that goes on around crypto, like people who manually arbitrage crypto between exchanges, it's just, mm. you know, it's like walking into 1950s with 2020 technology because there's just so much inefficiency in that market um, to this day that um, a lot of opportunities that have gone out in traditional markets, I think they're they're there in crypto. Uh, so that's why I think it also made sense from investment kind of like a meta investment point of view, right? As well, yeah. like you want to be where the edge is. Um, and I think that just the timing coincided well with us having the right tools and crypto kind of coming up more and more in the public space. So, I mean, you cited Bitcoin in terms of um, one of the cryptocurrencies in which you are executing this time series momentum strategy with. Um, are you touching a handful of other assets within the crypto space as well? Yeah, so we trade 15 coins right now, and our universe changes very, very slowly. Um, We can flip a switch and trade 100 coins. It's just that when you're trend following, adding the incremental coin to your trading universe has a very fast diminishing marginal utility. So you get the vast majority of benefits just by trading 5, 10 coins. And anything beyond that just starts to get a bit pointless. Unless, is that because they're just co- most of them are correlated with yeah, each other? That's, that's exactly the reason. Now, if only you could have a systematic strategy that exposes you to the next Bitcoin, like something that will go up a thousand X in value. Mm-hmm. Um, so turns out that's a pretty difficult problem. That's not necessarily something that can be solved in a trend following uh, manner. This is, I think, where like more venture style bets might make more sense because what ends up happening is that when you trade more coins, you allocate less and less to each coin. So each, you know, the 100x return becomes less needle moving if you're only allocating 0.1% of your capital. But this is still a problem that we're trying to crack. Uh, There might be a solution. Maybe you can dynamically adjust how much you allocate risk weight to each coin. And almost like trend follow the trend following in a sense. What I just said is generally known to not work, but maybe a very variation of it out there maybe works. So something we're actively working on. When you first like heard about Bitcoin and crypto, did that overlap pretty closely with uh, your interest in momentum, kind of time series momentum investing yeah. as well? Like, was that the exclusive interest in terms of your participation in crypto? Because obviously there are, a lot of people that are bullish in crypto in a broader right. sphere, right? Uh, but your ability to take advantage of this time series momentum, let's say alpha, is not conditional on the investor having a longer term thesis on you know the prospects of Bitcoin or other assets within the space. Is that is that generally right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I think there's like a one one and a half year gap between me first coming across Rob's framework and then me actually reading about how Bitcoin actually works. I had I had come across it in the past, but you know, this is in retrospect, this was a terrible decision. But I but I decided not to even look at it. Um to you know, I think this was back in 2014 probably. Because I said, well, okay, I'm gonna look at this Bitcoin thing and it's I'm going to get sucked into it and I'm going to invest some money and lose it all. And I'm going to feel like an idiot and hate myself. So, but then I think in 2017 summer, that's when I decided, okay, you know, I'm I'm just going to take a look at this. And that's when I read stuff by like, you know, Mark and Priesten, you know, why Bitcoin matters, I think was the name of mm. the New York Times article. And I think it was like 2013, 2014. I think that's a pretty old, old article. And I was like, damn it, I wish I saw this earlier. Um, and then I think vast majority of the time when people say they understand how Bitcoin works, they don't. And I think that's perfectly okay. But it took me like three months to understand. And I had like, I had studied cryptography at school. I had some background in the ideas behind it, like elliptic curve cryptography and things like that. 
but you really like there's always this question right like wh why can't someone else launch a bitcoin that's a pretty good question right and mm -hmm. yeah of course they can but why how does that not get confused with the bitcoin itself and why would the value accumulate to bitcoin uh, so all of these questions have intricate que answers that you that you only grow comfortable with if you do a deep dive like for example bitcoin network accepts the longest blockchain as the legitimate blockchain and that's because that's the chain that has the most amount of proof of work on it um and of course like once you appreciate that fully you realize that if bitcoin was to drop to one dollar per bitcoin like i actually would personally i would try to raise money and take bitcoin private so to speak cool of course you cannot do that because yeah. nobody's going to sell you all the bitcoins but you know in theory uh because it's like it's like the best performance artwork there is in some uh -huh. ways right like all this it's like all this human greed and folly and imagination and you know novelty kind of encapsulated by this proof of work chain that is uninterrupted for i don't know 10 15 years um and like that has, if nothing else, that has artistic value in a sense. Right. And then once you believe it can be $1, it's not hard to believe that it can be $100 per Bitcoin. Right. And, you know, uh, and then maybe you latch on these other narratives on top and then <clears throat> they create suddenly not $100, but $1,000. So, so you can easily imagine this thing doing boom busts until the end of time. <laughs> it's very easy to imagine that. Unless... Yeah. There's some problems like the security problem as the block rewards get gets less and less. But yeah, it's it's just a fundamentally like people everybody misunderstand most people misunderstand it because it's similar to so many different things. Uh, it's similar to a commodity because somebody's mining it. Well, I don't think that it's actually similar to a commodity, but you know people believe that it is. Um, <clears throat> it's similar to a currency. It's similar to a equity in a sense because if there's innovation around the space, that innovation should bring upside to Bitcoin's price. And that creates like a, almost like a equity-like profile where there's upside from innovation. Um, but to me, I mean, the best, there's no best explanation really, but my favorite one is uh, it's like artwork in an ETF, like an exchange traded fund where somebody put like Mona Lisa um, in an exchange traded fund and it's now infinitely divisible uh, shares are now trading publicly and people have an obsession with it. So they just do crazy things with it. So is that in, in terms of the assets most, most well-suited towards kind of, uh, momentum related strategies? Um, like I would yeah. think that ones that have strong predictable cycles, right. That go up and down in fairly systematic ways are, are good. Whereas if you have an asset that uh, investors can value very predictably and come to a consensus around the value quickly and agree upon it with uh, relative speed, then that is probably less well um, conducive to uh, momentum yeah. related strategies. Is that like the high level uh, kind of what makes a yes. good momentum versus what doesn't uh, in terms of assets? Yeah, so that's the theory. Now, in practice, any quant trend-following manager would tell you that it is very hard to separate a good momentum instrument from a bad momentum instrument because people have test back-tested this across everything, and it's everywhere. It's in equities, it's in currencies, it's in commodities, it's in interest rates. So it's everywhere. And uh, Rob, our research advisor, he always says, you know, like you cannot really make the conclusion that Bitcoin is going to be like... You can make the qualitative argument why that might be the case, but the quantitative backing would just not be there. But it just rings true. Like you would expect something like that to be more prone to boom bust cycles, etc. But you know, there is no quantitative evidence of that yet. Um, but in theory, yes, I would agree. I think that Bitcoin is the ultimate momentum asset. This is what I believe in, even though you know, I don't think that any investor should necessarily take that as a fact. And uh, and exactly as you said, if there are things, other crypto assets out there that have more of an anchor around fair value, mm -hmm. if they have more of a fair value as an anchor, then you can expect them to be less well targets for trend following. But then like if you think about equities, for example, trend following is shown to work on equities, even though equities have an earnings stream, 
or expected earnings stream that still fails to perfectly anchor them. I am not sure that I've ever come across a crypto asset that has a good way to fair valuing them. Mm-hmm. I think Ethereum with their now proof of stake thing, basically the network has an earnings stream now, uh, but that earnings stream isn't Ethereum itself. You know, that, that it's denominated in Ethereum. Uh, so does that really change things? I mean, maybe you can put a multiple on it and things like that. But I am much less confident about Ethereum network in this regard. It might have a fair value. And how about the actual like model that's constructed in terms of how you guys are executing the momentum strategy? Because I guess, I guess like at the highest level, to use a very crude summary of momentum, it's like winners have a tendency to continue to win and losers have yeah. a tendency to continue to lose, right? And yeah. so it's trying to somehow systematically take advantage of that phenomenon. So I guess like there are different models that you could run. Uh, has that changed over time since you guys started 2018, 2019 timeframe? Or does that mostly stay fixed? Yeah, most of the state fixed. Um, there are small changes, but they happen over time as they as we get more data and therefore our calibration efforts reflect the, that new data. But yeah, we're using the kind of well-honed methods of traditional asset class trend followers. And those methods are pretty well established. So what you want to do is you want to create a trend signal. So that will be the first thing. Um, you can do have something very simple, like you just go long if... Bitcoin breaches 30,000, let's say 30, the, for the past, over the past month, the maximum price Bitcoin ever saw was $30,000. So maybe what you do is you just buy if Bitcoin goes to $31,000, right? If it exceeds that. And then maybe you sell if you ever experience a 5% loss. 5% is a very tight stop loss, but anyway. So this would be like a pretty binary system, but then you can get more sophisticated and you can make it more continuous. Um and you can say, well, I'm going to incrementally buy more and more as the trends gets stronger. So maybe you buy a little bit at 31,000, you buy some more at 32,000, buy more in 33,000, et cetera. Uh, so that's more like how we do it. So that principle of having continuous signals is how we do it. So we basically compare, let's say 10 day average price. You compare 10 day average to 40 day average the higher the short-term average is to the longer-term average, the stronger the signal, and therefore the longer or shorter you should go, basically. Mm. So that's how we implement it. And then, of course, you want to do this across time horizons, not just a single like 10, 40-day time horizon. And then there are questions about how you would optimize, how do you combine these signals into one signal? Like how much weight do you want to give to each time window? And that's where techniques like bootstrapping come in. Um, they sound sophisticated, but but they're really simple at its heart. Basically, you want to allocate more to strategies that have worked and less to strategies that haven't. But while doing so, you should avoid overfitting, of course. Mm-hmm. And what bootstrapping tries to do is, okay, like what is the statistical significance of this outperformance? If it's like a short term, like if it's just five years of data and the outperformance is low, then you know it just says, okay, this is not a significant thing. I'm just going to allocate equal to everything. But if it's over like 30 years and you know there's a substantial outperformance, then you know the, the particular window might get 80% weight, and then the other one might get 20% weight. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah. So I get like when you started in 2018, 2019 timeframe. I assume you had like a set of rough expectations about how the strategy would perform. Yes. Were there any surprises in terms of like what's happened year to day? Because I, I did see the the deck that you had sent over and it's yeah. especially interesting to see like the sharp ratio chart where you look at yeah. like all the different asset classes with kind of time series momentum sharp ratio and you look at Bitcoin and it's just like way above the rest. Um, yeah. I guess from from your perspective in terms of expectations versus how things have played out, what what can you say on that? Yeah, I would say that the um, the surprise has been to the upside in the sense that it has worked better than you, what you would expect. But having said that, it is that unexpected result is also expected because luck is always a factor, right? So let's say your expectation was, I always tell a strategy like ours on a single asset class like crypto. 
uh, I think it's reasonable to expect its sharp ratio to be over 0.5. Now, of course, you can lose money. Your realized sharp ratio can differ, but expected sharp ratio, I think you can make the argument that it should be at least 0.5. But if I'm right about Bitcoin being the ultimate momentum asset, I tend to believe it will be more towards like one. That's like, I don't want to say like, a, it's almost like a belief is in a sense, it's meaningless, but that's the implication of what I believe about crypto. Um, so I personally, I expect 0.5 to one, and it's been higher than that um, <clears throat> so far. But of course, I wouldn't chalk that up to Bitcoin being the ultimate asset. You know, that that would require 30 years of data, not five years of data. If 30 years later, we look and we see all the other asset classes had 0.5 sharp in trend following, and Bitcoin had 1.2 sharp on trend following after 30 years, I think at that point, you probably have some statistical significance saying, okay, Bitcoin <laughs> was the ultimate, right. <clears throat> but it would have made like 100x over the next, over the past three years. And I still wouldn't have been able to say, oh yeah, we were right. It will take much longer for us to be proven right. Hmm. And and like when we were talking about the value investing aspect and just the the challenges there and how much competition there is in that space, like- yeah. I guess in a similar lens, have you seen more momentum-oriented strategies within crypto come up in, in this space over time? Yes. Um, I think there are more, definitely more funds. I think they're still managing trivial sums of money compared to the size of the market. So you would start to worry about these things if trend followers become like a very large uh, segment of the market. And even then, they might fail to arbitrage away each other, so to speak, because it is not exactly clear how you would, um, you know, because with something like value investing, you're fading the price move, right? Right. But trend following, you're actually kind of um, putting- Are you exacerbating, are you exacerbating yeah. the upswings and the downswings? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're effectively like, that's certainly the direction where you're kind of acting, right? Everybody's just buying as things goes up, which yep. in theory should, but then- the place where you can be hurt, uh, where you know being overcrowded in a trade can hurt you, is when you're trying to move out of the position. So trend followers, if they're overexposed, you know if they're a large part of the market, they can push the price up very aggressively. But then the stop losses can get triggered on the way down, and then they can you know exacerbate the downward move, and therefore that's how they would kind of get in each other's way. Uh, so in fact, trend following has worked poorly over the past year, year and a half or so, but like, that's very much expected. Just like, you know, having extremely lucky periods, you can have unlucky periods. And I wouldn't even characterize that as a particularly unlucky period. You can have much worse in theory. Um, so it's not like, you know, there's no evidence out there that trend following is overcrowded right now. Hmm. And when you guys are trying to pitch this to investors or even educate them on what the strategy is yeah. um, from like a communication understanding perspective. Is it, uh, is it fairly straightforward in terms of getting them up to speed with what it is you guys do? Because you are like, I guess, in some sense, branded with like a crypto, you know, uh, bent, right? But you're not yeah. just, you know, oh, we invest in, in crypto and you should expect X, X returns over, over time kind of thing. It's a very different aspect to it. Um, so what have you seen in terms of the, I guess, level of education of the people that you talk to early on compared to now? Yeah. And how do those conversations usually go? Yeah, I think there is like two different categories of investors. There is like the one who are, um, who they want to get exposure to crypto. They just want to have like a clever way of doing it. Uh, and they're worried about like the downside risk. I think that investor profile, they tend to, they're not necessarily up to speed with momentum, which is a like pretty niche strategy for people who are not in the investment business. So it's very understandable. So I think with that investor profile, we there's more like, you know, here's what we do. Here's how it would perform under different scenarios. Crypto, in theory, crypto can do extremely well and we can do poorly. And vice versa, crypto can do extremely poorly and we can do well. That's kind of the whole point of a hedge fund in a sense uh you want to generate like a you want to squeeze squeeze out a diversification from the same asset class just by your trading style so um 
Those conversations tend to take longer. I think that it's not a very hard strategy to explain. People tend to be receptive to it. Whether or not they decide to invest, that's a separate thing because sometimes people um, prefer having that very clear crypto upside. Like I really want to make sure that I'm going to do 10x if crypto goes up 10x, et cetera. Yep. And I don't care about the downside risk, et cetera. So that's the one. Uh, but then also that there are a lot of other people who are like, okay, I really want, I don't want to just buy crypto because I don't trust it. Um, I want somebody who can manage that risk, who can give me a better, uh, more sensible risk profile. I don't necessarily believe that crypto is the best thing since sliced bread, but I want to, if it becomes huge, I want to have exposure to it. Like that's, I think those kinds of investors really love what we do. And then there's the other kind of investor who are like perhaps more professional. They've been in the investment business in the past and with them, it's pretty much instant. Like they may or may not invest, but they instantly get what we're trying to do because it's a style that they've seen elsewhere. So then it becomes, you know, question of everything else, you know, do I trust these guys? What is their operations like, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. And have you seen any uh, obstacles in terms of regulatory aspects as it relates to crypto where you're based? Uh, I know there's like always questions around changing regulation. And I assume that's the, that risk factor is a question that like investors have at times, right? But what have you seen anything yeah. in, I guess, the EU where you're based in terms of uh, concerns? Yeah. There? I mean, not really. We don't need to trade on crypto exchanges because we can just use CME futures. Like if, uh, if all spot crypto trading were banned, it wouldn't change anything. in our, Well, it would change some things, but like not hugely affect us because we would just go back to trading CME futures. And as we talked about, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, just trading those two would give you like 80, 85% of the benefits of trading all coins into, with a momentum style. So that's not really a concern. The other aspect, I guess, is that the bank account closures. So I think certainly when Signature and Silvergate Bank shut down within, I don't know, weeks or months of each other, that led to a scramble to open new bank accounts. But yeah. that was the full extent of the issues we had regulations-wise so far. And I don't anticipate um, any of the upcoming regulations to affect us dramatically. Just because of the way that we do our trading, we don't move money between exchanges all that much. And, you know, so uh, it's a, we have a pretty vanilla operation. Gotcha. And do you, in terms of the investors that already exist within the fund, in terms of how they view this strategy within their broader portfolio, are, yeah. do most of them have like a, is it a small percentage of their portfolio that they would allocate to you guys? Um, or is it, does it vary in terms of how, yeah. how much they want to size the, their, their investment? Yes, typically very small as it should be. If you were doing like a risk parity kind of analysis, like how much should I allocate to crypto? I don't think that you would, in any reasonable way, you could come up with more than 5% and that's all of crypto. And in crypto, maybe you would want to do like, of course, if you're running like a, let's say an endowment or something like that, and that 5% would include presumably different styles. Like you may, maybe you want to do buy and hold crypto and the venture investing in crypto and momentum and you know statistical arbitrage things like that so i think that's why we tend to be small uh a small percentage of our large investors but then there are individual investors as well and maybe these investors are looking to triple their capital over the next 10 years or something like that so they can be more aggressive with their risk targets with those individuals we tend to have a larger percent of their portfolio i think but i don't think in any case we're larger than 10 percent I mean, and at this point, it's both uh, U.S. investors and uh, yes. investors US, based in the U.K. Or yeah, exactly, U.S. and Europe okay. mostly. Gotcha, gotcha. And I guess in terms of like from a management perspective, it's mostly like validating and reviewing performance, right? Yeah. But for the most part, like once you have set up the uh, like kind of the system, it's it's mostly self managing for the most yes. part. Is that right? That's correct. So the, the, the good question is like, well, what the hell do we spend our time on? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that's, so, and, and the answer is, well, there tends to be a lot of administrative stuff in the kind of like the hedge fund business. I think that probably takes up a good 10, 20% of my time easily. Mm -hmm. But then I would say a good chunk of our time goes into searching for and building the infrastructure for other strategies that complement momentum well. So in traditional asset classes, for example, carry 
tends to get blended with momentum. We haven't done that yet because it, it's not a huge needle mover in crypto because carry returns are so low compared to volatility that it's kind of like it's an afterthought in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all this other stuff like around skew. So all of that new um, strategies, they require research, but sometimes more importantly, they require building out complicated infrastructure. So it it really takes a lot of time and effort to build out those strategies and do all the necessary kind of risk management around that. Um, And then also there are things like, like I'll give you an example of what I've been working on for a long time. So there is a very poorly understood, poorly managed risk in crypto space, which is people do long short trading on these offshore exchanges. But when you're short, your risk is uncapped. So you can actually lose all the money in your account and then then some. Right. Now, crypto exchanges tell you, well, we're only going to, you can only lose the money that's in your account. Beyond that, we are going to socialize the losses. Well, sorry, we're beyond that, there's the insurance fund. And after the insurance fund, there is the socialization of losses mechanism where the winners pay for the losers, basically. Now, I have every reason to believe that this is how they would do it. But there is no legal certainty <laughs> around this. So in theory, if you dig deeper into terms of service, more often than not, what you will find, in fact, in almost all cases, the terms of service of the exchange allows you, allows them to come after you for any negative balances. And like, this is a one in a, well, first of all, it's a, it's a risk that's impossible to exactly put a number on, but it's reasonable to think that it's probably less than like a 1% risk. Uh, but it's still a risk that can cause a lot of trouble. It's unclear that they could ever collect that from you, um, but you know that can put a lot of stress on the operation, and possibly it can actually mean your fund like losing more than what it has put in the account. And crypto is crazy enough that um, crazy things can happen. A coin can go up 10x overnight, with like with a with a gap risk, and you know the 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 exchange that you're using may not be able to stop you on time right and your account balance goes negative and i don't know maybe this happens on a large enough scale that the insurance fund is depleted and all their you know so so you can imagine a scenario where things go south and then, so so basically this becomes a legal question right like and then you have to talk to your lawyers and you know try to work with exchanges and to do so so this is like something that i've easily spent uh, I want to say 40, 50 hours on, more of that more recently. Uh, th- the way that you hedge against this is like buying options, right? But the problem is not a lot of the altcoins have liquid options markets. So Bitcoin Ethereum has liquid options market, but the others won't stone. So a lot of the time goes into building these strategies and then thinking about ways to eliminate risks. Like well, mm-hmm. the way I like describing it is like, okay, we're, we wake up tomorrow and our fund is down 50%. What went wrong? You know, just go through the list of things that can go wrong at that scale and just cross off items from that list. And that's a good chunk of what my time goes into. I guess in the industry, this would be called risk management, but it's getting a such a, like, you know, what happened with FTX, right? Like there's all these people, uh, especially in crypto that go walk around talking about risk management, et cetera. And then they've given risk management such a bad name that I don't even want to refer to this as risk management. <laughs> I want to refer to this as like paranoia. Um, but yeah, so like basically the time goes into this risk management stuff and then also building new strategies that would complement uh, trend following well. That FTX debacle have any like, kind of second order consequences in terms of how you were running the momentum strategy and any of the risks involved? Yeah, no, no, it did not because we fully expected that that sort of thing could happen. So, so when it happened, and then, well, to be fair, like if there was, there's a long short fund out there that lost like 5% on FTX, I don't want to be hard on those guys because depending on the strategy that you're running, Mm -hmm. We might need to diversify across 20 exchanges. And just if you're doing arbitrage, for example, hey, if you're doing like 100% per year, you know, losing 5% every couple of years is not a problem. Like it's just a risk that you would be happy to underwrite. So with our kind of strategy, we don't have to underwrite that risk. Uh, We can just simply choose not to leave money on exchanges. Or if we do leave money on exchanges, like when we're buying Litecoin, which is not on CME, we would go to some place like Coinbase, which is a regulated 
exchange. And that does not mean that, you know, nothing can go wrong there. It's right. just that there's just more things need to happen before something yeah. goes. Wrong. Uh, so yeah, like we can get away with not underwriting those risks. And we made the deliberate decision to pay more in commissions instead of underwriting FTX or Binance counterpart risks. It just does not move the needle for us too much because we trade slow, but we would, you know, it would reduce our counterpart risk. So there are all these questions that you constantly need to review all the time. And yeah, so for, for that reason, FTX made no change to us whatsoever. So the way that the that Stylus acquires exposure, whether upside or downside exposure to some of these um, these yeah. cryptocurrencies, is it direct in that like with Bitcoin or Ethereum, you guys are you guys engage in exchange, you buy the asset and then you store it um, like internally within Stylus and kind of same process when you're selling, you're not holding anything on the exchange or is there like a portion of it you guys will bring in-house to Stylus and then like a portion, a very small percentage, you'll just keep on the exchange for the strategy. Like, is it a combination of, of that in terms of how you guys are acquiring exposure? Yeah, exactly. So we, would, we wouldn't leave more than 5% on Coinbase, we would leave like a de minimis amount, um, typically one to 2% maximum. For example, if we want to be long Litecoin and Avalanche, that would be acquired on Coinbase and then moved to Copper, which is our custodian. So we don't hold the keys to anything. And then when we do want to sell, you know, Avalanche, Solana or whatever, we would move them from Copper to Coinbase and then we would sell it there and the dollars would get transferred out to our bank account. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. One of the things that I hear, at least like on the equity side of momentum strategies is that like there are certain periods of time where momentum can like work really well. And, you know, yeah. when it works, it really works. Um, yeah. Whereas there are other periods of time where um, the performance is just like not as strong. It, yeah. would you, is the same phenomenon, um, does that, would that occur in crypto as well? Or is it you know, given the the type of asset class, maybe the, the time horizon is compressed where it's like, yeah, it doesn't work for a period, but a period is like a couple of months or something like that. Yeah, yeah, great question. So I think, yeah, traditional asset classes, um, trend following had like a bad 10 years, which then was interrupted by last year where trend following did extremely well. I mean, trend following didn't lose money on average, I think over the past 10 years, but it was just like not returning much. I agree with the idea that's like, a 10-year horizon would be more like three years in crypto. <laughs> Intuitively, it feels like that. It's just a, like such a fast market. Uh, yeah. But I think that, you know, as I said, just like it's impossible to make a qualitative judgment about um, Bitcoin being a better trend-following asset class. Uh, sorry, impossible to make a quantitative judgment about that. I also don't think that we can really make a quantitative judgment and say, oh, yeah, cycles are definitely faster in crypto. Mm -hmm. So I think... We can easily have a scenario where trend following does nothing for 10 years. Although I say that, but that's just like very hard for me, hard for me to believe just because crypto is such a crazy asset class as we see. And there's always this narrative cycle. So it's hard to imagine like a bad or good narrative that crashes or spikes the price does not come about in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And when we last spoke, probably like a year and a half ago or so. I think that the perspective that you had taken, at least with with Bitcoin, was that you um, were mostly like agnostic in terms of the long term potential upside yeah. or downside. Whether it's it's that or it's these other cryptocurrencies, I realize you don't have like a horse in the race as it relates to this momentum strategy having success. But have your yeah. views changed or morphed at all, or are you mostly? Uh, I I I find this momentum strategy at work. So I'm going to stick to that and not worry about any of the other stuff that goes on. Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely like very much in the we stick to systematic investment strategies and not worry about anything else. So yeah. my stance very much that, uh, but always again looking for other strategies that we can implement at scale that can complement trend following well. So that's always the case. Uh, my personal view, I think, is the same as it was like a year ago, or even probably even three years ago, which is I am not a crypto pessimist. I act pessimist when there's all that crazy bullishness going on because like it just gets ridiculous. But because of the current pessimism, I feel 
more comfortable coming out and defending crypto in a sense. I have no like affiliation in terms of ideologically or decentralization, or I really don't care about that stuff. Yeah. But I still have a, I'm agnostic with a mild bullish bias, as I call it. And my bullishness comes from two things. Uh, one, I do think that it's artwork-like. And as the global financial wealth increases, I think these scarce coins would be will be chased similar to artworks or classical cars or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think from that, just from wealth getting larger, I think Bitcoin, if you ask me, is Bitcoin going to be higher or lower in 10 years? I would say probably higher. Um, so that's number one. Number two is I still believe <laughs> that crypto can have some interesting age use cases that are not fully discovered yet. And I think all of these experiments that are being run in crypto space, some of those could pay off and mm -hmm. we could find ourselves using it. And that can create some demand, uh, residual demand for, say, holding some Ethereum in your wallet. And if people do that more and more, you can imagine price going up. So there's like the art upside and then the equity upside. So I believe those art and equity-like characteristics makes me believe that crypto has positive expected returns. Um, now, I don't think that those positive expected returns are like 100% per year. Uh, I think they're maybe, okay, it's impossible to tell, but somewhere between say zero to 25% per year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an expect to sharp ratio question. I guess the best estimate that can be made, okay, this one has the same expected sharp ratio as art or equities. And that, let's say, I don't know, that must be 0 0.3 or something like that. And considering Bitcoin's volatility or crypto volatility, let's let's call it 50% vol and 50% times 0.3, that's like 15% annual returns. That would be my as good a guess that as I could make. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think that it will go to zero and stay there. I'm not a cynic um, to that level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With uh, with the listeners and if they have questions about uh, momentum investing or they want to learn more about Stylus, what's the best way to kind of get in touch with you? Sure. So our website is stylus.digital. So S-T-Y-L-U-S.digital. So I think that would be the best way to both kind of see what we do and to get in touch. Awesome. Well, Burak, it's good to kind of reconnect. I could probably shoot like another hour or so with the uh, with questions on on the topic. It's a it's a fun space because I do follow kind of crypto discussions, at least in terms of podcasting content and on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't have as much exposure to like momentum strategies. So it's interesting to see the combination of the two um, and just get your perspective. So appreciate the conversation and and thanks for joining. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, uh, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.